Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy or making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to view the job of the teacher as a farmer of nerds, curator of resources, and transformer of communities. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Nate Bowling, formerly of Tacoma, Washington, and now Abu Dhabi. Nate Bowling was the Washington State Teacher of the Year and finalist for National Teacher of the Year in 2016 for reasons that will soon become abundantly clear. These honors mean that he is in high demand for speaking engagements and was the reason I had the privilege to meet him. Nate was hosting an Ignite talk for the Seattle Times Education Lab, and I was one of the presenters. As soon as I met him, I began following him on Twitter, and when he announced his move to Abu Dhabi, I knew I had to interview him before it was too late. Nate and I talked in late June in his classroom at Lincoln High School in Tacoma, Washington. I guess my first question is what brought you to teaching? What was your path to teaching? Most people who are teachers have a story that goes somewhere along the lines of uh, they really love kids and they always wanted to be a teacher. Uh, They wanted to work with young people because they want to be around young people. And I don't really have that story. I'm a policy wonk and I'm somebody who... uh, Essentially, I'm using my classroom as a laboratory, or I guess better put a greenhouse in order to build like a better community. I, I, I fancy myself as a nerd farmer, and that's the name of my podcast. Yeah. With the idea that uh, I'm planting seeds for the future. And so my students who I'm working with are the future small business owners, uh, law enforcement officers, real estate agents, local elected officials, and entrepreneurs. And so for me, it's a, 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 a critic of my politics publicly might call it social engineering, <laughs> but really what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to grow a better community uh, where I live. And I've chosen to live in the neighborhood where I teach for right now. And so I want what's best because I want better neighbors. So in talking about nerd farming, yeah. um, I guess getting to the podcast is called Lesson Impossible and sort of how people have persevered over challenges. What challenges have you faced in in having that policy in your classroom and having that philosophy towards teaching? Uh, My challenges that I face are not student challenges. Uh, I always say that, like, students are the best, adults are the worst. (laughs) They are. I have a friend named Tom Rademacher who's a teacher of the year in Minnesota a couple years before me, and he says there's many things that are wrong in schools, but none of them are students. Uh, If if you ask me day to day, it's going to be a different answer. I think right now I'm thinking a lot about lateral accountability and the idea that like schools are held together by a fragile social contract yeah. and that if members of the learning community aren't doing their part to hold students accountable, then it all falls apart. Uh, students aren't stupid. They're savvy consumers and they can find the weak link in systems. And there's a lot of adults who are in systems who aren't interested in like the accountability work. Like I, I'm not in this because I want to be loved. Like I don't give a damn about being loved. Yeah. Uh, I'm in this because I want to push students to be better. And not everybody shows that philosophy. And so that actually gets to one of my later questions, but I want to put it first. So I was reading in preparation, reading, and because I follow you on Twitter and follow your blog. You were reading typos then. <laughs> Something you said really struck a nerve with me, yeah. and it, it was saying, our schools are designed for middle-class white people, for middle-class white people, in order to produce and replicate more middle-class white people. 
what are some of the ways, I know that you are definitely the number one disruptor. What are some ways that you have been disrupting that system and ways that other teachers can disrupt it? Well, hold on. I, I, I think before we even go to disruption, we have to like, I'm one of those folks that when my students like have an argument, I'm like, you got to back that with evidence, right? Yeah. So let's get some evidentiary conversation for why I say that. I'm going to take over your show for a second. Please. Who are some of the, like the most important thinkers and philosophers who like we cite in education conversations, either historical or now? Old white people. Yeah. So like John Dewey, right? John Marzano is like the guy right now. We talk about Piaget and Vygotskyans on the possible development. Like these are all just old white dudes, right? And not shading old white dudes. Like some of my favorite people, old white dudes, right? <laughs> But like, that's the reality of, of like what I see in my school. Um, I think that one of the important things that students need to experience in order to kind of break that paradigm is divergent viewpoints. And so I'm very selective about the authors who I put in front of my students. Um, I try to put a diverse array of authors in front of the students. I, I think about demographics a lot, and I'm pretty good at math. And so white Americans are 62% of the U.S. population. Uh, that means because, you know, you got a 50% chance of birth minus, you know, whatever. So that means that 31% of the U.S. population are white males. And so that means that 31% of the authors we read should be white males or 31% of the da-da-da-da-da. Otherwise, you're overburdening the curriculum. And so I'm very thoughtful and intentional about the text that I use and the choices that I make uh, being examples that I use. And that's not like I exclude white males from the curriculum because, like, I'm teaching American government. You can't do that. Like, yeah. we got to talk about Madison. we got to talk about Hamilton. we got to talk about Brutus and Brutus One and the, the Anti-Federalists. Uh, but if I have an opportunity and like a coin toss between a, uh, a a white male author or frankly a white female author and an author of color, then like I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna choose an author of color almost every time. The other thing is is that I have to talk a lot to students about navigating spaces. So I'm monolingual. I dabble in Spanish, but I'm adept at code switching and moving in and out of cultures in a way that my students need to develop as well. And so I understand and try to articulate to my students that there's like a pedagogical stance that I have and a, and a vernacular set of language skills and registers that I use in the classroom. And then occasionally I will slip out of standard register into a more informal register. And then occasionally I'll slide uh, back into formal register. And I, I, I try to model that, that kids of color basically need to be chameleons or navigate the world. It's funny because that talk that you or that, that tweet that you're talking about is from a few years back. I've kind of simplified it now. I'm like, these schools ain't built for y'all. Yeah. Right? Like, these schools ain't built for y'all. And frankly, the society ain't built for y'all. And so you have to figure out a way to navigate this in a way where you do the least damage to your psyche and get the most out of it. And, like, that's the conversation that we have in my classroom a lot. We know that if you look for it, you can find it. Um, but do you have any specific places where you would direct people that were wanting to diversify their curriculum? I had a student teacher four years ago. Shout out to L. Clayton. I love you. <laughs> um, and L. talked about how the job of a teacher in the 21st century is to be a curator and not a creator. Wow. And so... As far as resources go, like, if you're a teacher, like, oh, I don't have resources, like, get your bum butt on the internet. Like, <laughs> okay, I can talk about, there's a Twitter hashtag called Decolonize Lit, I believe, and it's all about, like, diverse authors. And one of the tweets that I loved, love, love, somebody was saying, essentially, like, we need to, like, what lesson can be taught from reading Catcher in the Rye that can't be taught from reading Trevor Noah's Born a Crime? Yeah. Right. Uh, and so I, I would say that I oftentimes find community and I find good resources on Twitter. Again, as we're recording this pretty recently, I posted online a request about looking for resources, about looking at 
the civil rights and economic status of Native Americans, and the number of replies I got was overwhelming. Uh, there, for everything that you're interested in, there's a Twitter hashtag that's kind of going along with that. There's the Teaching Tolerance materials. So Teaching Tolerance is an organization, I believe it was spun off by the Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, and they offer a ton of free curriculum for teachers and some paid trainings about uh, equity issues and offer resources to teachers. Uh, I belong to a consortium of teachers online called Hashtag EduColor. Uh, and it's a collection of teachers who are far flung across the country for whom like matters of equity are important. And we host monthly chats about issues in education. Uh, the last one was about teaching and dealing with misinformation. And uh, there's not a lot of black teachers in Washington State and really not a lot of black male teachers in Washington State. So in many ways, I'm a unicorn. And it's my sense of community. And, and that goes to, obviously, the issue of inequality in the teacher population. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the burden that is unequally placed on the few teachers of color in a school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how can this system, do you feel, attract and keep teachers of color? Or is it just you need to burn it down and start again? It depends what day you catch me on, on how burn it down I am. There's somebody who was smarter than me that said, like, all systems are designed to get the outcomes they're getting, basically. Yeah. If we want to have more teachers of color working in schools, then we have to create an environment in which students of color feel valued and feel loved and feel like schools are a place that they want to come back to. And for folks who talk about wanting more teachers of color, I would ask them, what are you going to do to improve material conditions of learning for which students of color experience? Because why would a student come back to a place where they're miserable? Yeah. And so if we are not talking about addressing inequality and inequity and oh gosh, just the, the awful treatment that many students of color receive in these predominantly white environments uh, and in these schools, then we're not serious about teacher diversity. And so teacher diversity is important to me because I I really think that it's a tool and a lever towards societal change. And I say this a lot, but it's really difficult as a kid to sit there and go, black people are inferior when there's a black guy teaching you calculus, (laughs) right? But again, like we have to create environments that folks want to remain in. What would be a a lesson or a unit that just fills you with an immense amount of pride? Uh, every year, for the last few years after the AP exam, we're doing a thing called Contemporary Issues in Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. And what we do is we give the students uh, choice. And so often, students are denied choice. And so the students vote on what they want to learn about. And so this year, the five things that we're covering are issues around immigration and how undocumented people are treated, and also how our immigration system works, because I think a lot of folks don't understand how it actually works. From there, we moved on to interaction with law enforcement and like how students should handle themselves and do with law enforcement. It's like a civil liberties issue, right? So we start with civil rights for the undocumented and then civil liberties. So then we moved on to civil rights for our gay and trans brothers and sisters. And I'm actually really intentional about saying in class repeatedly our gay and trans brothers and sisters because students actually have gay and trans brothers and sisters. And also I get tongue-tied over LGBTQ2+. (laughs) And in fact, I think said two just now instead of Q. But anyway, whatever. Uh, And then from there, uh, our next one is on government surveillance, which is getting back to civil liberties. Uh Uh, And that started a few years ago with like the whole Snowden thing. And then our last unit is honestly should be our first unit in every class is on tribal sovereignty. Yeah. 
and the idea that here at Lincoln High School we're sitting on land that belonged to the Nisqually and the Puyallups and was taken in the Treaty of Medicine Creek. And that Native Americans surrendered the land from Centralia to South Seattle and from Shelton to Mount Rainier for $32,000 at gunpoint, basically. Yeah. And that's how we end the year, looking at tribal sovereignty and, like, how tribal government works. Actually, I'd like to dig deeper into the the tribal sovereignty. Sure. Like, so um, where I come from, a lot of classes will start with an acknowledgement in the beginning of every class about um, whose land we're on and... Um, that has become sort of like the big button issue in education. Look, may I ask you really fast? Yeah. I have a friend who says that's performative liberal do-gooderness. Yes. And so I, I, I think it's a good idea, but like his argument also makes a lot of sense to me. So he's like, you acknowledge it, now what? So So that was actually going to be my question. Which ah! Is, which is... Um, is that something that you find a lot in the education sphere in Washington, which is that there's these governmental ideas, and then by the time it comes down, it's just completely washed away? Or have you seen examples of initiatives that have been incredibly powerful? I'm going to answer your question with a James Baldwin quote. Okay. The liberal sympathy, for I have never met a northern school teacher who did not claim to be a liberal, (laughs) is really equal to the dry-eyed task of teaching. I know that a good teacher is rare. I also know that they are not as rare as all that. I'm a survivor of ghetto school, and that their rarity is not a problem. The problem is that they are deliberately made rare and relentlessly weeded out. The process is efficient, and it, too, operates on a level which absolves any particular individual of responsibility. Wow. It's always the right time to quote Baldwin. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I think that land acknowledgements are super important as a starting point. But if that's what you're doing and then you're patting yourself on the back saying, yeah, we did land acknowledgement, then like that's not enough. I think that in any social studies class, there should be a conversation about whose land you're on, how that land was acquired. And there's a lot of lip service paid to justice in teaching and then a lot of unjust practices. Like, I don't care how much you give to NPR or that you have, like, a Che poster on your wall. Like, if your kids can't read, what good are you? Yeah. And so I actually got in trouble with some friends of mine because I was – was, so I was involved with a conference that was centered on social justice. And some folks who I care about deeply basically proposed a workshop. And the workshop was going to be about, like, reading strategies. And somebody on the steering committee for the conference was like – there's no social justice tie-in to this presentation. And I am like, there's nothing more liberatory than teaching a young man of color in particular how to be a better reader and more fluent in reading in order to navigate life. Yeah. And so sometimes I think folks get caught up in their justice vapors, and in their justice vapors they actually lose sight of like the work, right? Like the, the, the work of a teacher is to help transform communities and uh, – my wife says oftentimes, and I, I love I love her for this one. Like woke tweets uh, aren't going in white supremacy, <laughs> right? And so I think that there's a lot of folks who are putting a lot of energy into places that aren't making differences for marginalized populations, and that a lot of folks need to reassess where they're putting their energy. And that's me tiptoeing a lot, I guess. So yeah, yeah. You are AP government. Um, you're a social studies teacher, yeah. and oftentimes 
social justice issues get siloed into, well, social studies will take care of that. Like there's a teachable moment in the science class when we're talking about biology and classification and race, but your social studies teacher will talk to you about that. And well, and frankly, there's a lot of science teachers out there who I don't want talking about biology and classification and race to be clear, but continue, please. And so for teachers that are not specifically social studies teachers, what are ways and what are positive ways you've seen change and positive social, and again, that's such a loaded word, but sure. like positive social justice movement happen outside of the social studies classroom? So I'm a greener, right? As I went to Evergreen, and I've always believed in interdisciplinary learning. And so like even the idea that like I'm teaching civics, I major in economics, right? So I major in economics, I teach civics and geography. And so I'm constantly integrating other disciplines into my classroom. Uh, I think that reading and writing and literacy are important, so I'm integrating those things. And so... If I can teach geography and, and integrate elements of literature and elements of economics, then you can teach social justice math, right? Like, again, we're back back to the curator thing. Like, each of us has an opportunity to select our own examples and select our own frameworks from which we're going to work. And so if you're really serious about the work of justice, like, there's things you can do to integrate that. I remember back when I was student teaching, uh, I was doing it at Jason Lee Middle School, which is a lower-income middle school across town that I went to as a kid. And we just started extrapolating out and trying to figure out uh, the amount of revenue that is generated by the United States uh, via slavery through cotton farming. You can do it in a math class. Yeah. Like, you want to talk about exponential functions, right? You want to talk about uh, exponential functions, like talk about payday loans and compound interest, right? And so it should not be left to social studies teachers to focus on these social justice matters, obviously. But frankly, I'm going to argue it doesn't even get left to us. I think English teachers carry a lot of the weight. Yeah. I, I, I think a lot about how... So we talk in class about the metaphor, and I'm swinging my arm right now, yeah. of a pendulum, right? And so the pendulum policy swings back and forth. We had like our STEM obsession that I feel like we're coming out of. This is a stolen idea, and I don't know who to cite for it, but like Apple exists because Steve Jobs had a good STEM education, but also understood the humanities and aesthetics. We have to have a grasp on the humanities in order to do STEM right. Otherwise, you have a bunch of folks with, well, you have YouTube, right? Which is a bunch of computer geniuses with algorithms, but no grounding in justice and morality. And so they propagate uh, white supremacist, neo-Nazi nonsense and hate online and spread it across the globe like inadvertently. All that to say, if we're having those conversations in the humanities, there's space in the STEM classes to talk about justice and talk about the world and talk about matters. And I frankly see those opportunities wherever possible. Like I want to integrate my instruction and talk with math folks about what they're doing and line things up. But one of like the downfalls of teaching is, is that no teacher has enough time in their day to do their assigned tasks. And so, like, I'm not shocked or mad that teachers don't do it. Like, when the hell can they? If you had an unlimited school funds, full control, oh, gosh. unlimited time, what does your classroom look like? Is it even a classroom? Man, one of the reasons why, like, I don't go to administration is, like, I don't want to think about this stuff. This is so, <laughs> this is so big. I just want to teach kids, man. Um, no, uh, if you give me unlimited funds, uh, I... Th- well, I'm going to ask this question differently. Yeah. If I'm going to build an ideal school, uh, my ideal school is going to have opportunities for kids to be outside. Like, I feel like students need to be integrating their learning into communities and doing, like, service-based learning and project-based learning. I feel like the spaces that many students learn in aren't worth caring about. There's a 
writer named James Howard Kunstler who talks about like the geography of nowhere. And so many schools are just poured concrete messes. And so I, I would love to just have students be outside more and interacting with community. One of the things that I get frustrated about is like my kids are dope. Like my kids will have some of the deepest conversations about stuff and some of the most beautiful writing, but for the most part, they have an audience of one, right? I'm reading their writing. I'm listening to their conversations. Well, that's not fair. They have an audience of each other as well, but I don't think the typical person gets to see like how amazing this generation is. Uh, and so other things that my school would have is my school would have intentional opportunities for community to come in and see students. I have an open classroom policy, open door policy. And so like folks can come to my classroom all the time and they take me up on the offer all the time. So like talking through this. So at my ideal school, uh, outdoor experiences, service learning opportunities, community connections, the community's audience. Uh, and then the last thing I kind of think about is, is uh, how do you make your school a center of the community? In human geography, which is another class that I teach, we look at uh, rural settlements and in many rural settlements, there are circular settlements. And so there are circular settlements. And at the center of the circular settlement is uh, the market, right? So it's either like the, the church, the cathedral, the mosque, the bazaar. Ideally, if we as educator, education practitioners are doing our job right, like our school should be the circle of the community. And that means that like there's opportunities to take your school nursing office and pull your school nurse out and put in a nurse practitioner and turn it into a community health clinic. Mm. There's opportunities to do after-school programming and that keeps students in school and engaged uh, beyond the school day. There's opportunities to have maybe your school library, not just a school library, but a public library in a partnership with the library system. And if we're keeping it buck, given the number of kids we have who are experiencing like homelessness, there'd be dormitory facilities. And like that's how you make school the center of community. I think so with the open door policy, yeah. I feel like schools, especially in an era of school shootings, are becoming more and more closed. Yeah. How do you navigate that open door policy within is it like do you get administrative approval or is it just something that your school has been okay with I have the least interesting answer ever I don't even know man <laughs> I don't even know what would you say is the best part of your job and the worst so a couple of thoughts about the best part of my job the best part of my job is the idea that like I get to put my intellectual and cognitive fingerprints onto a group of students who are going to go out and be agents in our community like I help students come up with their uh, basic definition and formulations about democracy and justice. What does it mean to be uh, a citizen? What is it? And and by the way, not like a U.S. citizen, but like a citizen of a community, like in the old like Greek sense. Uh, at the same time, I get the hug. I get on graduation day to hug the fruits of my labor, right? <laughs> and like I read the names at graduation, and it's something that like I get stirred up thinking about. I had an experience today where like I've been in this building for 10 years and I announced that I'm leaving publicly a while back and a parent who I've had three of her kids came in today and basically cursed me out in Spanish because <laughs> she found out I was leaving from the internet instead of me telling her and she has one more daughter coming through she wants me to have and I sat there and that was this morning right and I just teared mm -hmm. up in front of my freshman like mid-lesson having a broken Spanish conversation with his mom yeah. like that's dope uh, the worst parts of the job it's exhausting like on Fridays, if I don't go home and take a nap, I'm done by 7.30. Uh, 
I oftentimes don't have control over out of school factors that impact my students' lives and their, and their achievement. And so I can do everything right and everything I know how to do in the classroom, but I don't have control over what happens outside of school. I don't have control over their housing situation, their family situation. I don't have control over food stability. I don't have control over budgets. Uh, I've spoken at the funeral for students and like that's that's the worst. Like I, I had a kid walk up to me um, after I eulogized uh, Elijah Crawford, who's a student who passed away a few years ago. And they were like, Mr. Bowling, you're really good at doing that. And I'm like, I don't want to ever be thought of as being good at doing that. And uh, I think about that a lot, honestly. Like, I, I don't want to get super dark, but, like, losing Elijah was definitely the low point of my career. And uh, I've remained in contact with his mom. And when I went to the White House and met President Obama, I took the program with me. Um, and so, like, I took Elijah with me to the White House. Yeah. And so, like, that's the low. But, uh, yeah, like, the low is just that, like, it doesn't, matter, it doesn't matter what you're doing in your classroom. Like, there's just shitty things happening in their lives sometimes, right? And, like, all the data tells us that the most important in-school factor impacting student achievement is, like, teacher effectiveness. And so, like, that's my challenge to be effective. But out-of-school factors matter more. Yeah. You tweeted about, you talked about your leaving. Yeah. You tweeted about it. And prior to that, you had tweeted about how four of the finalists for National Teacher of the Year went on strike or left for D.C. Yeah. Uh, and then now you yourself are leaving. I, there's I'm, a lot of interviews with you around that, so I won't make you reiterate sure. all that. One question is, why choose to share it? so broadly yeah that's fair uh my principal talked about like when he leaves and he's been here 15 years he's why i'm here right yeah uh when he leaves it's gonna be like an email that goes out the night before (laughs) uh i'm a public person i have a platform and so what i always try to do when i'm using my platform is i try to speak on behalf of other folks and so if I have a podcast with 10,000 monthly listeners and I have some stupid number of Twitter followers that I somehow can't monetize, darn it, I have an obligation to use that platform for good. And so when I talked about my so – here's the thing. is, is like my school is dope. Yeah. My classroom is dope. My kids are dope. Uh, it's just time for me to do something different. Yeah. And I have a platform where I can advocate on behalf of the profession and talk about like – what's going on in the profession and speak on behalf of my colleagues who aren't going to get listened to, who aren't going to get on PBS NewsHour, who aren't going to get in the USA Today, right? And so whenever I use my platform, I try to use it on behalf of marginalized populations. And a lot of times and a lot of issues, teachers are marginalized populations. Your wife is yeah. a teacher as well. Yeah. We're, so we're right now in palatial room 306. I call it the corner suite. It's a large classroom, is it not? Very it's beautiful. huge. Yeah, well lit. And my lovely spouse, uh, Hope Evangeline Teague Bowling, teaches in room 200 down the hallway and downstairs by the library. And uh, yeah, we're making the move together. How do you find being married to a teacher? Because I know there's some people that say that they'd never yeah. want a spouse that was a teacher. And some people just love having someone who just gets the fact that you're still up at 2 a.m. on YouTube trying to find that perfect video. Listen, are you, wait, wait were you filming my house last night? Stop it. <laughs> No, like, like, so my, I'm lucky enough that I married my best friend and my wife, uh, and a lot of times my career has been my instructional facilitator. Like she's helped me craft lessons, helped me with ideas. I love being married to a teacher because 
like she gets it. I teach nine, twelve. She teaches ten, eleven, and so like I literally hand her kids and get them back. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, right. Last question would be. What is your message to the teachers of teaching college that are graduating in 2019, going into the classroom, who really feel empowered to make a difference? I honestly would probably say the same thing I'm saying to my seniors. So my seniors graduate next Friday. Today was my last day of my senior seminar, and I kind of just sat and talked through um, some old man wisdom. You're going where your friends are going. So when you get to your school and your new assignment... If you find the tired, grumpy-ass teachers, uh, you're going to end up being a tired, grumpy-ass teacher. If you find the people who are jaded and like don't believe in kids, uh, then you're going to become the person who's tired and jaded and doesn't believe in kids. And if you find the highly effective go-getter perfectionists who want to improve their work and practice, you'll, you'll become that person. Like You go where you're going and you go where the people who you're surrounded by are going. Find your people. Yeah, you got to find your tribe. And you're not always going to find your tribe in the school that you're at. You might find your tribe online, right? I mentioned earlier on the Ed to Color movement. Like, that's my, that's my teaching fam. And, and honestly, I'm, I'm blessed that I have a series of overlapping, like, tribes, right? I'm like a Russian nesting doll of teacher <laughs> tribes. So I help start Teachers United, which is a policy advocacy organization uh, that advocates for, like, student-centered education policies. And, like, so my TU253 family is, like, a tribe that I have. I was the Washington State Teacher of the Year. So, like, my group of finalists who I was a finalist with are, like, my teaching tribe. Because I was State Teacher of the Year, I have 57 friends who are, like, in states and territories who, like, the vast majority of them, uh, the vast majority is a few, um, <laughs> I, I, I share a worldview with, and they're my tribe. And then I have Edu Color, which is my tribe. I have Abe Nation, my Lincoln family, which is my tribe, right? And so, like, those tribes feed me. You're not always going to get fed uh, by, at your building, but you have to get fed or you'll starve. And if you starve, you, 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 you basically will burn out. Uh, one thing I'll add is, is that in this moment right now, in the market, particularly in Washington State, uh, the market's to your benefit. There are shortages. Uh, I know we're doing layoffs here in Tacoma because it's a stupid budget stuff, but almost everywhere else in the state, you should be choosy about making sure going into the right situation. And there's a lot of well-intending, like, nice liberals who want to, like, go work in the hard urban school and, 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 take, and save kids. But, like, you don't save kids if you can't do the work. And so I cut my teeth for my first three years at a more affluent middle school. And I likely would encourage other folks, if, unless you student taught in an urban school and, like, know that's the work you want to do, you need to learn how to teach somewhere else because these kids don't deserve – these kids deserve better than you figuring your stuff out. And there you have it, Nate Bowling, on why you should cast a critical eye to your resources, advocate for the voiceless, find your tribe, always quote James Baldwin, and marry a teacher. This has been Lesson Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin. Please feel free to rate and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, and a variety of other podcasting sites.